0: Welcome back to Are You a Robot? I am Demetrios Brinkman, your host, and today we're talking with Sarah Williams. In case you do not know what this series is about, we aim to tackle some of the greatest questions that stem from AI and related technologies. And the way that we're doing that is by getting some of the best and brightest minds in their respective fields to come on here and talk with me about what it is that they're working on, how they see the state of the world, if there's anything that they feel should be highlighted in this sector or their particular sectors for that matter. So I will mention that in case you have not joined it already, we have a Slack community where a lot of these conversations that we're having in the different episodes are continuing and they are having more people join in and giving their opinions about what they think on the episode content. So jump into our Slack community if you would like and you are interested in any of these topics and you want to continue the conversation. The link is below that you can find all the details on. And last but not least, I will mention our sponsor who is just incredible. I have not I do not have enough good words to say about ethicsgrade.io. They've been our sponsor from the beginning and they are incredible, not because of the people that work there. Well, yes, because of the people that work there are mighty fine people, but they also are doing some cool stuff with their business. If you have ever wondered what the ratings of different large companies or small companies, tech companies, car companies, what their process is like when it comes to AI, their ethical, their morals, their data governance. Ethics Grade has found a solution for us to see that. They give scorecards on all of these different companies. so you can see with a rating, just like you were back in school between A and D. Actually, it goes all the way down to NR. Uh, There's no F, which is nice of them, but it goes to NR. And so you can see where a company is rated judging from all of the data that the ethics grade team has been able to get publicly and sometimes privately on these different companies and their different programs with AI. So, Again, EthicsGrade is an ESG benchmarking firm or an ESG ratings company, I should say. And they are studying the non-financial impact that companies have on the world. Now, if you'd like to see more about them, Check the link below or just go to ethicsgrade.io. I highly encourage at least downloading one scorecard of your favorite or least favorite company. You may be surprised in what the score that this company has gotten. And thanks again to EthicsGrade for sponsoring this. And without further ado, let's talk with Sarah Williams. Are you a robot? Excellent, Sarah. Well, it is an honor to have you on here. I am very excited about talking to you about your new book, some of these projects that you've got going on. But first, before we jump into any of that, maybe you could give us a bit of background on how you went down this path going from being in urban planning and, and then getting into data science and what that looked like.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um let's see, like I, as I said, I started as a geographer. Um, I was always interested in how place and people work together and how the, where you live, um, affects, um, how you see the world. Um, but I, I started, um, in my early career, really doing a lot of, uh, satellite interpretation and interpreting satellite imagery from my geography. And we used a lot of the work that I did to help the world food program, figure out where to send aid ahead of time. Um, so like basically we would, uh, analyze drought patterns and like kind of try to predict like El Nino, La Nina effects, um, Mm -hmm. like potential drought situations, and then like use that. Uh, but, um, but I was always interested in design and I wanted to be a designer. And so I went to architecture school um, after I, I did that programming for a while. Um, and then, um, you know, my first job out of landscape architecture school was working on a project in Philadelphia to um, create what's, what we call like a stormwater tax. So that means if you have... Um, too much runoff, you get taxed in a way, but actually, I mean, the way that it works is that you get a tax credit um, if you reduce the amount of uh, stormwater that you have on site. In any case, my job, this is now, this is a kind of permanent thing in Philadelphia, but I worked very early on in this project. And what I did was basically figure out a city property that would be able to reduce their stormwater. And then I would design and build like, so I designed and build green roofs, but, um, mm-hmm. it was experiment. So like my job was to kind of go out to these city properties and say like, do you want to do this? And they sometimes would say, you're totally crazy. Go away. <laughs> I was kind of, I was kind of the litmus test for whether this program would work or not. Um, thrown under the it bus did many did. times by my boss, <sighs> but, um, but then I realized what was really exciting about it is that I could change policy, change world, like, um, and so I got really interested in, like, in what I really was doing was urban planning, and so I went to school for urban planning, um, and that's where I kind of brought and mashed my skills back together, right, Um, really thought about data and data analytics and how you could use that um, to you know, identify a kind of different uh kind of patterns in the landscape. Um and um, you know, really use my like the design skills that I learned as an architect to think about communication and communication strategies. Um and so um from that I kind of started what was called the Spatial Information Design Lab at Columbia University, and I did that with my partner Laura Kurgan at the the time. Um and just really got excited about and started working on lots of projects along those lines. Um, Hmm. I think our first project, which was called the million dollar blocks was really successful and kind of gave me hope that this kind of work would be something that I could continue with. Um, But definitely as any of us along the path and along the way, there were moments like, what am I doing? I like used to be a, a programmer uh, interpreting satellite imagery. Now I'm a, a landscape architect building green roofs. Like, what? and it now it, like all makes tons of sense. But at the time, you know, we're often wondering where our path is going.
0: So yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about one of the projects that you have yeah. right now going on in Nairobi and this informal transit system and. I know that, so I think we should probably start by setting the scene of what is happening in Nairobi when you want to get transit. For many of us, like myself, who have never been there and don't know what it's like to just get on a bus or uh, to try and go from one place to another.
1: Yeah. So um, in Nairobi, first of all, Nai- Nairobi is probably one of the most congested cities. I think if you look at it. That, um of uh, global cities. It's like really the top five. Um, uh, and they have a kind of semi-formal transit system. So they don't have a public transit system, but they have uh, these uh, mini buses that are called matatus, uh, which actually means three pence for a ride in uh, Swahili, um, uh, which it used to be three pence. Now it's more like 20 pence. 20 uh, um, uh, pence. But um, the Matatu system is really kind of the the public transit system. It's operated by uh, private owners, but they have kind of an association. They get together and they plan routes Mm -hmm. and stops um, that are loosely based on an old British system. There was at one time a public transit Mm -hmm. system in Nairobi. So um, when I started going, I have done a lot of work in Nairobi. I started um, working on congestion models for them early in my career. Mm -hmm. And what's crazy is there was no data about where these buses went um, and like where were the stops. These were, I mean, they were kind of locally known, but, and they represented the majority of the cars on the roadway. So I really wanted something for my transportation model to get on a bus. Um, I mean maybe I should describe like how you get on a matatu Do, do yeah. you want me to do that? Yeah, yeah. Describe I mean
0: everything please I yeah, have no idea things. what happens yeah
1: <laughs> yeah what happens so there are set stops for ma- matatus um, and um, they're really fun like they're each matatu has this unique design. there's um, the Jay-Z and Beyonce matatu um there is the um get milk matatu i mean there's like uh the michael jackson matatu there's the, oh there's a van Dam matatu um but um they um are at they go to stops and then um a conductor tries to get people to get onto the the bus and In a way, it's really interesting because there's different uh, scales of matatus. There are matatus that have Wi Fi on them. There's matatus Uh that have um, lots of DJ music and tons of screens. Like, so there's like screens throughout the matatu, and you can like watch Uh uh, music videos. Um, And then there's just basic uh, matatus that maybe are just like a van with like no frills, and like definitely you pay according to the kind of matatu. But they, a matatu driver tries to fill up the matatu, and then they uh, go into town mostly. Um, the, those are the, the main routes. So if you're farther from the city, there's more, I guess, um, emphasis of trying to get passengers, and these conductors are kind of competing. As you get closer to town, you're lucky if they stop for you, or you try to get them to stop for you, because it depends on how um, built. But um, so, in any case, um, it's a fun experience and different and interesting for sure. Um, and um, but as I said, when I started working in Nairobi, you didn't have a map of where these were, so if you wanted to get on a matatu, you would have to ask a driver. A lot of times you would go down into the center of the city and say, like, I need to go here. How do I find the matatu that goes there? Um, Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, like, I needed this data for my model. But, I I mean, why can't we create data for everyone to have? Um, Mm -hmm. And to really create a map of this system that... um, People who are not from Nairobi can understand the system, but also local Nairobians can can make better decisions because I think a lot of times if you were going somewhere in Nairobi and you didn't know the path or the matatu, you would go into town, ask the conductors which -hmm. which matatu goes to where you need to go. And so oftentimes it would cause like extra, uh, let's say travel or transit. Um, So um, yeah, I mean, uh, we developed the map in a way that looks like a subway system that you might see in New York or London. And it became extremely popular in Nairobi, kind of a a symbol uh, for the city and much the way that like New York subway system uh, is there. Um, But there were inserts in the newspaper, uh, but it also now is in Google maps. So you can uh, find your Matatu uh, route uh, using uh, Google transit um, as well.
0: So how did you go about collecting all of this data? Did you just ask every driver or did you ask the people that are in the know? And the other side is, I imagine being a driver, you have your route, but some days you do a different route. So is there a little bit of variability in that?
1: Yeah, so what we did is we, um, and this project was a collaboration between the University of Nairobi, um, Columbia University and MIT. And we built an app with the University in Nairobi that crowdsourced the data. So as people were riding uh, the Matatus, they would uh, record the stop and they would record the route name. They would talk to the Matatu driver um, about about the routes and how much they change. Um, you know, they do change often, but we kind of use the most, um, let's say, the one that they use the most. And they only really change them for uh, traffic congestion other issues, um, which do happen quite often. Like you might have a traffic accident and, or a traffic jam, and then the Matatu would decide to take a different different route. Um, but um, yeah, the, uh, it's basically a, a, a set of volunteers that went out with this app and the vehicles, kind of did these recordings, um, and then we brought them back and processed the, the data sets. Um, and we continue to update. This was done in 2014. Actually, we started in 2013. Um, and then we released the first map in 2014, and then we continue to update it, and we build uh, different kinds of crowdsourcing apps to update it. Um, the last experiment in this was really to have the Matatu drivers update it for us. Um, and so we would go to the main terminal stops and ask them to reconfigure um, the routes like for the changes, which... Um, I think was as effective having now having the base data, it was just a lot easier to do the changes that we needed.
0: Yeah. And people were more bought in. I imagine they understand that this is going to be something that is valuable.
1: Yeah. I think what was cool too is so we built the app with the university Nairobi students And those students got really excited, and many of them did their own cities and hometowns. Um, So like Uh Eldorado, I think uh, Mombasa, um, and that was just um, something that they did on their own. And so I think that's exactly what we wanted to do, is not just build a technology, we wanted to build the technology with people in Nairobi, so then it would kind of catch on within Nairobi, but maybe more broadly, which it has uh, now many African cities have kind of taken the lead of what we've done. um, And what we try to do is have them teach each other how to do the app. So I'm not involved in all of those cities, but um, the idea of kind of disseminating the process and the work um, through both the students and other kind of network of people doing this type of work.
0: Well, yeah, that was my next question because I've mm-hmm. heard about the company in South Africa. Where's my oh, yeah. transport? Mm-hmm.
1: Was yeah, that, yeah?
0: was that based off of this or was that a.
1: Um, where is my transit transport? Sorry. Um, they started maybe a couple years after we did the Nairobi app. Um, I think they've, told us that, you know, our work has inspired them, but I think they also were interested in the idea um, before. So kind of, I think it was emerging simultaneously perhaps, and then they got funding. Um, We partner with them a lot on projects. Um, They have, let's say like a different model. Like our model is really to, um, let's say like get this, stakeholders in the local community to build the data themselves and then upkeep it so um, stakeholders in each city are different um, like uh, I'm just thinking like Mexico City was more formal in terms of like the government wanting to kind of pay and participate in this versus and, and kind of build the data versus most of the time it's um, like nonprofit groups that want to build the data and sometimes it's like an NGO. I think that what happens with where is my transit is they actually get a contract pay- to pay and build the data set for a city. Um, and so they, you know, they charge the city for create, or they charge it whatever organization they're working with to create the data. Um, so our model is trying to, so, I mean, we partner with them a lot, but it's, uh I guess like a, A different business model, in that like I I would say, like we're a little bit more nonprofit and Mm -hmm. trying to, let's say, build the skills into government, NGOs, or or local like transit stakeholders. Um, There's lots of pros and cons of both models, I think. Um, You know, uh, but it's it's yeah.
0: So was there any? I imagine there was a lot of thought put into how to make this when you are going out and collecting this data for this project how you're making sure that the data that you are collecting is is inclusive and you're making sure that you're getting everything that you need as opposed to just like you mentioned like the the Michael Jackson (laughs) ones that are the famous ones that everyone knows about but uh, also, making sure that you're you're getting the routes that are going into other areas of the city that might not be as known or might not be um, as popular.
1: Yeah. So to run a matatu, you have, you do have to register with the city. Um, so um, that was like the number one way that we, the first way, not the number one way, the first way that we made sure that we had um, all the matatus. So um we have like a list of their numbers and um not necessarily the route but it would say generally the area in the city that it navigated it would tell you the the end terminal and the the uh, uh two terminal rider mm-hmm. um but um but i think this is also why you know we really um included a lot of stakeholders in the data development and i think that's where it allowed us to make sure that we were getting all the routes. So we uh, worked with the Matatu Association, um, and invited them to meetings about data collection. Uh, we worked, uh, um, actually there's like a Matatu union, if you can believe it, um, uh, that we also worked with. Um, we talked to drivers, but we also talked, we included the government in our conversation. So we would have workshops, um, where we would talk about the data collection and then ask people to volunteer to do data, data collection or the crowdsourcing, I would say like a lot of times, the Metatra drivers and owners weren't interested in collecting the data or even the government, but um, through these workshops, you know, help provide like important information about routes and stops that um, we used for the data collection. And I think this is where we might, this is is definitely where we're different from where is my transit, is that um, like our process like is more, I guess, inclusive of like the local community. Um, it takes longer uh, to do that. Um, but I think in the end, it builds skills and uh, resources. I think oftentimes, whereas my transit comes to the city, they, you might might use the guide that the, the city has and maybe not, you know, because that's the contractor, that's the objective. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that's, they do that for all cities, but it's just again, um, you know, not often partnering with like the Matatu organizations or so forth because it, it is let's say like not cost as cost effective. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that they've been changing their model uh, because, and I haven't talked to them for a while, but I have heard that they've been changing their model because they realize that they are missing data.
0: Yeah, and I like this idea, which is so fundamental when it comes to machine learning or AI or data science. And it's making sure that you have all the stakeholders involved, the the necessary stakeholders, and not skipping out or leaving anyone out. And so that idea of inclusion, I think, is a good segue into your book and (laughs) some of the different topics that you talk about in your book. And I think that... In the first chapter, you mentioned how there's historical ways in which we use data to create racial biases. Can you go into that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, data is, you know, uh, the first chapter is really big data is not new. We've been using data since Roman times, It's like even earlier, um, and it's always been, a tool for power and control. I mean, early on, it was like landowners, like knowing all of their property and resources and control. I mean, examples from the Chinese government, like, which is like the oldest bureaucracy in the world, early, early uh, data collection. Um, and I talk a bit about, you know, I kind of talk a bit about that, but then I kind of fast forward to, you know, uh, kind of turn of the century. Uh, when we became really fascinated or society in general became really fascinated with mapping, uh, making maps, um, trying to understand the city. And I mean, a lot of this is largely due to kind of industrial revolution, kind of people flocking into the cities, a, a kind of uh, a concern from the elite of like all of these nor- new poor people that they're kind of mixing in with. Um, and data was really used to kind of map this new phenomenon, but also um, as a way for urban planners to control the city. And that often meant complete removal of certain communities, neighborhoods, um, slums at the time that that they were called slums. Um, But, um, and um, I think when, Thing that I found really interesting, like when I was doing this is, you know, you know, one of the most famous maps is these Booth maps that were Charles Booth created maps of London, um, which are often considered the first socio-demographic maps. He went to every household, um, you know, found out their income, who lived there, um, and, he really be- he was a philanthropist, and he really believed that data is the only way that he's really going to address the problems of the city. And I do think his objective did help attain and uh, create an understanding of, let's say, poverty conditions, places that are worse off than others. Where do you need to direct resources, um, that kind of thing? But at the same time, um, you know, people who had those maps use them. For, from their perspective, and many had biases. So, like for example, a lot of the Jewish communities in London were completely redeveloped. Um, and I mean, you know, when you even hear Charles Booth's writing, he's he's a little bit anti-Semitic, and so mm-hmm. you can't help but uh, make a relationship between his own biases of these communities and his use of the data. But it's interesting. I think the maps are interesting because they have this, you know, on one side they did a lot of good for the city of London in terms of directing proper resources, but they were also at the same time used for as a tool um, to eradicate uh, certain kinds of communities or neighborhoods. Um, so it's, a, it's, I think it's a good story of how one data set can be used for good or uh like bad objectives. And it's really about whose hands they are in um, and how people use that data to kind Mm. of advocate for their own perspective of
0: the world. Are there ways that you see that happening nowadays?
1: I mean, I think it happens every day. Um, And I think... Um, absolutely. We need to question every single piece of data visualization that we see. I think, mm. uh, I think, you know, even like I, I, do, Oh, I'm good friends with, let's say the, the map people in the New York times. And, you know, one of the things that they're constantly debating is like, how do we present, let's say this neutral map, uh, right. And like, how do we make sure the representation, but it's extremely hard, uh, right? Because you are making decisions about how to break down like the colors in the map and how you see high and low and, and all of that stuff um, um, cre- comes from your own interpretation, which then uh, it has bias in it, no matter how much you try, like you, you know, I mean, and they do, they really try to check themselves um, at the times I've been on many conversations, but I think that when we look at any maps or charts that we see, we should really also be questioning that um, because you don't notice like maps are really good artifice for um, telling stories from a certain perspective. And the reason I say that is because we believe them to be true. We believe a map, just like kind of how we see maps, they're fact, um, right? Like, you know, the road is there, it must be, you know, a fact, truth, Um, I can can equate it to a certain kind of truth. Um, But we forget that it's constructed, right? Um, So like, you know, sometimes when you look at a map, you'll see like, the break in percentage is like zero to 70%. Then it's like, 70% to 75, 80 to 85, you know, like, that's not actually, (laughs) it's kind of skewing the data. So I think, I think also, a lot of times unknowingly people um create maps that are maybe maybe used inappropriately, like they don't know the ways in which you know their breaking down of the data can be skewing the results as well.
0: Yes, that was exactly what I was going to ask, and if yeah. there are uh any tips that you have found over time when either analyzing maps or looking at maps and putting them under the microscope of how to catch these unconscious biases that were interjecting into the map creation? Yeah.
1: I mean, I think that um, like, you know, we have so many online mapping software now that makes it really easy to make a map. Like there's some Cardo DP, there's, called Kepler, allows you to upload your data really quickly. And then it kind of automates the bins that you put your data in. And I spent a lot of time talking to my students about how do we create those bins to make sure that, let's say, they're as neutral as we possibly can make them, right? So do you make them equal intervals? So it's 10, 20, 30, you know, so that's, I think looking at your spread of your data, it's completeness and then how you represent it um, within that spread is like super um, important. And I think that a lot of the mapping software default to like allowing you to see different colors. So the algorithm that they use in the back end is not not for the intention of let's say uh, kind of, like neutralizing the data set, but rather allowing you to see variation in it. Um, and so I think it often creates skewed maps by default. <laughs> um, so I think that's like number one thing is like, think about when you upload data into map, like what are, how are you, how are the numbers coming across? Um, I think that though, you know, that's a very technical point. Um, maybe, you know, one thing that I recommend in the book is really ask people in the data whether that data holds true to them. So let's say you took some census data and you want to look at the percentage of minority and you maybe go to that neighborhood. Does this really seem to represent what you know to be true um, of this neighborhood or find something? And I think you often find critique or criticism that helps improve your visualization. So it's one thing that I always advocate for when um, developing data or mapping to really ask the people who know that place the best, like whether or not um, the findings ring true to them.
0: And you mentioned something else that I find as a very important piece of this puzzle, which is we're we're more inclined to believe maps because we expect them to be true. And it's so easy to, as you mentioned, just throw data into one of these software programs and get something that is a little bit biased because it is optimizing for the colors and showing different colors or showing differences. Whereas if you manually put them into buckets in the way that you think is more representative of what is going on, you may not get all these cool colors, but it might be more realistic. So there's um, a study that was done on uh, on people that showed how much more likely we are to believe something when a machine algorithm tells us that it is true. And I think it's i don 't think there 's been a study that has been done on people and how how much more likely we are to believe something if a map is presented in front of our face or a graph or something, but it is that that same uh, that same ability that we have to just believe something because computers tell us it 's so is really interesting in my mind and We're so used to it with calculators from when we're kids. We think, yeah, well, two plus two is four. And then when I plug in this crazy equation into the calculator, we get uh, the answer and I'm just going to trust that it's right because it's math and the computer can do it better than me. And then when you go on and you extrapolate that out or you abstract it to a new level where machine learning algorithms and they always have bias and they're not always correct but we still are used to believing the computer if it says something is true it's a very slippery slope and so when you talk about the maps and us being looking at something and seeing it, seeing this data being visualized in a way uh, that is an, an easy storyline for us to understand we we kind of assume that it's right and we assume that uh, because it's being visualized it is it is valid, and so those are some things that that I just catch from what you're saying, and it's really a strong point that I I'm understanding now too. Like, how many times have I looked at something and said, "Oh, cool," and never questioned the sources, or not even the sources, just the way that that map was laid out.
1: Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. There's this book um, called "How to Lie with Maps." Um, and super interesting actually, because it really kind of goes through like basically the multiple artifice that map makers create to help kind of help tell their story or help lie like there's actually there's actually a book called how to lie with statistics I think too also which kind of goes into this yeah. like same
0: same author, or with, different author
1: different author I think he the Mark Matamir is the author of How to Lie with Maps. He's like a cartographer. He's written a lot of uh, cartography books. He's like a a map journalist originally, so he kind of Mm -hmm. talks a lot about that. But then I think the person who wrote How to Lie with Statistics like kind of pulled off of his. uh, (laughs) He he liked liked that title. But um, I think um, it's super interesting. And I think, you know, what's, I, I mean, to get back into the history of it in, in a way, like, you, you know, bef- it's, people don't realize that it wasn't until 1796 that we had a first graph or chart. Um, like, we kind of think graphs or charts have been around forever, but previous to that, data was just kind of printed in a book, and so you would see data. And um, Playfield um, did this first chart, And when you look at his writing it was really the charts were developed to um, create a representation that emphasized the power of the government so he was looking at like essentially kind of goods and transfer of goods uh, and he's trying to make it look better Um, and like he came up with this construction of the chart uh, to represent the data so like even the first chart that was developed kind of had this um, let's say like kind of interest in kind of persuasion and persuading Mm. us to look at things like at a, in a particular way. But it's just funny because we think of a chart as being truth or knowledge. Um, And so I think, I think it's uh, super, super interesting. Um, But I think, I love that you're bringing it up to now, the algorithms that we developed, the AI, you know, we're at that same invention point, right? Um, mm-hmm. That Playfair was way back then. Um, and I think that, you know, I think definitely sometimes algorithms, you know, promote certain kinds of biases, but I think that more often than not, it's unintentional. Um mm-hmm. Uh, like, um, it's like people not being reflective of their own personal bias that they're bringing to the algorithm or the project Um, or, like, even thinking about, you know, like, so, like, the facial recognition bias, you know, not thinking that your training data set is full of white people and, therefore, is it representative? Um, And I think, you know, obviously... Yeah, people are becoming more and more aware of this now that there's, you know, more critique in the mainstream uh, media about it. Um, But it did take that critique, I think, to get there. But I see it every day still, you know, at MIT, for example, I went to a lecture just last week about um, basically uh, there's a group of people trying to look at structural racism and policing um, and they had this data set of stops um, in New York City, and they had p- kind of put together this algorithm, and it appeared as though there was a racial bias just in the way the algorithm was developed. And then um, he was using use of force data set, and we know that use of force is way underreported, um, and so you know, like there in that particular situation. You know, he's trying to answer a question, but using the wrong data set uh, because that data set is biased. And, you know, it's it's something that we constantly have to think about um, as we do our analysis.
0: Well, it brings me back to something that you said earlier on the diversity of teams and how important that is for you. And I wonder if you can just speak on that a little bit and maybe some of the benefits that you've seen from having these diverse teams, and also what, what exactly a diverse team looks like for you, and what does that even mean?
1: Yeah, I think like because most of the work I do is trying to create some kind of policy action, so uh, I really do want to have experts in the field on our team. So you know sometimes I actually can be the expert, but I you know, I'm working on a project right now with the World Food Program trying to visualize migration patterns and the cost of migration from Guatemala, Honduras, um, and El Salvador. And like we're working with a policy of migration experts, the World Food Program, we're kind of bringing them on our team because this is something they have been thinking about for a while. And what are kind of the questions that are unanswered? Um, But they can also help really understand the bias in the data, which is like why why I see you leaving it back. And then I really like to have data scientists on my team, kind of experts and kind of understanding data analytics. And I always like to have a designer or or kind of architect or designer on my team thinking about like, how do we tell the narrative or the story um, once we kind of come up with the data analysis? And I think What's nice about the team is, you know, we'll make a data visualization and then the policy experts are like, no, that's all wrong, right? <laughs> like you've got it wrong or or maybe they can identify some of the bias on it um, or even connect us to the communities um, to ask questions about um, the data set itself. Um, and um, But I think, you know, that's, I think, you know, at the very minimal, those are the kinds of teams that I like, policy, data science, uh, and designer, but I often bring other people in because, you know, sometimes we collect data build technology to collect our own data sets. And then we're bringing in programmers and um, a lot of times we want people to use the data. So we kind of hold hackathons and we get involved with the local technology community and the local technology community becomes part of our, our team. Um, so it, it really depends on, on the different questions that we're asking.
0: Well, if there's one thing that I'm going to take away from this chat, it's that I'm going to be highly skeptical of any data visualization (laughs) I see from now on.
1: I think we should all be skeptical and expose it. But, you know, one thing I should note is, you know, this kind of bias and representation isn't always a bad thing either. This is kind of the, like, kind of murky water. And I I think I'll bring it back to one project that I worked on, which was called The Million Dollar Blocks. And in that project, um, we tried to illustrate the cost of incarceration. So we took data about where people lived before they went to prison. Then we added up how much it cost to incarcerate those people. And then we identified that many blocks in New York and elsewhere, Kansas, across the U.S., it costs over a million dollars to incarcerate people from that block, but those same blocks don't have like, proper education, job training. The systematic things might be causing them to go to prison in the first place.
0: When, when the you talk about the a me- block, sorry, real fast, yeah. you're talking about a building that someone is living in, is that correct?
1: And a block is actually like a city block, so something that's bound okay. on four sides by a street. Um, so blocks, you know, can be all kinds of different shapes. In a city, they're kind of square, you know, in suburbs they're kind of bigger. But yeah.
0: anything. I've that's been living in above... Europe too long, and I've been knowing blocks as like a an apartment block, and oh, okay. so, so I totally forgot that reason. But yes, please continue. I, I cut you off. Yeah, I so just, like. Just, you know, uh, No, it was good
1: that you're clarifying it. It's very good. You're right. There's housing blocks. Um, And so we found, you know, that there are some blocks um, where we spend over a million dollars, but then we don't spend any money on education or any kind of... So the idea here was to kind of help people see the injustice um, or our response to poverty is throwing money into the criminal justice system rather than addressing the societal needs of those. But, you know, our maps made, like kind of broke the data at a million so that you would only see those million dollar blocks, right? And then we made them very red to emphasize, you know, and in a way that was an artifice um, of our kind of own bias to show this particular issue. So, you know, while the representation Um, tried to be, um, let's say, you know, like the way that we've been the maps, we tried to be very transparent about it, but we also were trying to highlight a particular issue. And um, I think that's okay. (laughs) It's an advocacy, but it also, you know, helps people see, you know, these red blocks across all of it and kind of tells our story in a better way um, or message.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can see that. It's There is something to be said for the visual learners out there and for those people who understand by seeing more visually or they understand visually rather than by hearing it. And so it gets into exactly like you said, it's very murky waters because in this case, you want to show and you want to advocate for change because there is something that is obviously wrong happening. And so you show this data. It's not that you're skewing the data. It's not that you're doing anything wrong to the data. You're just showing it. You're presenting it in a way that is more... It It's like a, a blinking red light for what you're trying to go for, that change wow. you're trying to go for. So it is, it's very interesting that you yourself notice the... Fine line that you have to walk uh, along this, and and the power of the maps and the visualization. There's another thing that I wanted to get into before we finish up, and that is at the end of your book, you talk about the seven principles of using data for action. Can you go into those real fast?
1: Yeah, um, I think that's a really good question. So you know, through the work that I did, and, and actually through the process of writing this book, I really realized, kind of articulated the kinds of ways that I hope that we can um, use data for good, not evil. Uh, but the first one is really to do no harm. Um, and I think, you know, whenever we're making a map, we must, or data visualization, or using data, or using an algorithm, we must interrogate the reasons that we want to use Data and determine the potential of our work to do more harm than good. So like a great example of that is, you know, like in the Nairobi case study, right? It was great that we were visualizing the matatu system and helping provide access to the community, but you can imagine in other communities that visualizing this informality could cause a crackdown, could remove this essential resource from the community, Um, And so we should always think about when we're using data, what could be the possible harm that could come from it. And so, you know, obviously uh, you don't want to, you know, further marginalize people or, um, you know, take away resource. Um, We've emphasized this over and over again. The second principle is building teams. I really believe it helps to kind of generate uh, better narratives and stories around the the data set. the third principle is changing power dynamics, and I think here what I'm really talking about is that we can all build our own data. So rather than looking for data that's coming from the government or even Facebook or Google, like we have the ability to collect our own data and tell the story from the pers- from our perspective, and that really changes uh, the dynamics of power and how we can advocate for policy change. I think the fourth principle is expose hidden systems. Um, And, you know, the example I gave of the million dollar blocks is one of those, like, you know, really data can expose this kind of inequity, um, you know, that like, and in fact, that million dollar blocks project has been used a lot recently to talk about defunding the police, like the idea that we spend more money on policing than kind of systems. So expose those systems and use data to do that. The fifth principle is ground truthing. Um, I really believe uh, in ground truthing. And what I mean by that is not just like seeing if what we found is true on the ground, but also asking people, so asking people that are in the data whether what we found holds true. The sixth principle is sharing data through communication, which we talked a lot about. I think by communicating with data and visualizing it, we make it more open for everyone. So it's not just data scientists or it's not just the technocratic planners or it's, it's open to all groups um, and how to, I think sharing it through visualizations are a great way, but also literally sharing the data um, is important too. And then finally, I say, create your own ethical standards. And I think here, you know, as you mentioned, we're coming up with new algorithms every day. We're coming up with new ways to process data. Um, and, you know, really regulations or kind of rules and ethics around that use of data, you know, have, haven't have been developed yet. And so it's really up to all of us to kind of create our own ethical standards of practice um, as we work in this kind of future um scenario of technology or as we're innovating in the future um, and, you know, create, create those standards of practice for your own stuff, but help inform others as well.
0: I love all of those. And I think the third one is really interesting. And I hadn't thought about that before on how the tables have turned and the ability for us to go out and collect data. The barrier to entry is very low these days. And so we can go out and we can collect our own data and we don't have to rely on anyone else or the access to other data. If, if you want to create a project and you would like to see what the data is behind that, then it is not as complicated as it was, say, 10, 20 years ago. Uh, so yeah. I really like the idea that the tables have turned and we really have much more power than we think.
1: Exactly, and you know, collecting data can also create communities around you know an idea, right? Like we all collect air quality data, and then use mm-hmm. that you know to advocate yeah. for change. We also build communities around that work.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly, because there's more people that are interested in these ideas and interested in this change, and so you're going to be able to find like-minded people. And then you have to deal with the power, the great power that comes with the map building process and the responsibility of presenting that data in a way that is, is fair and it is showing it, it is correct um, or at least it, it's accurate. Uh, and yeah. so so the the other side that I wanted to just mention before the last question that I have for you is is that last one, which is the ethical principles. And we see it now, and especially in the u s, the government isn't really going to be making the ethical calls. They're not going to be coming out with uh, laws that say what you can and can't do. It seems like they're dropping the ball on that one a little bit. But we as, the ones who are going out and creating these projects, we can be our own police and make sure that what we do is is morally and ethically sound.
1: Yeah, I, absolutely, and I think this holds true for all technological innovation. You know, mm. kind of rules, ethical standards like are way delayed, um, and it's mm-hmm. up to us to build. Build those standards for ourselves and help others build them as
0: well. I know it's very easy to say. And then when you're faced with a problem and you see the competition maybe isn't as ethical, or you see that, well, if I just did this, which isn't that ethical, then maybe I could get a leg up. It really tests your moral fibers, I would say. And so that is I understand. That's true. Yeah. It's when you're out there and it's uh business's business sometimes so it's easy to fall down that that whole rabbit hole and especially if you're not working at a nonprofit and so that's why I appreciate when you go and you do these projects it is coming from this nonprofit stance so that you don't have the two incentives fighting Against each other, and they're not working against each other, which I I find you tend to see more when it is uh, corporate business going for yeah,
1: and especially when you have clients that have certain agendas, and mm-hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a very it's hard to navigate um, yes. that relationship.
0: So, last question for you, I yeah. would love to know, Sarah, are you a robot? <laughs>
1: That's so funny that you asked that because uh, I have friends who are like, "Are you, you're you a robot because you do way too much. I don't know how you do that much. like. But I'm like, I'm definitely not a robot. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm definitely not, but I think my friends would argue with you because they don't know how I keep staying up and doing projects and stuff. But I don't think that's what makes you a robot. I think... Um, I really bring creativity, kind of different perspectives to the work. I mean, maybe robots can do that someday, but uh, not yet.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on here. This was an incredible chat, and I am, I learned a ton from you. I also am super fascinated by the work that you've done in Nairobi and with all of this informal transit. I find that. Absolutely incredible. And I thank you for all of the work that you are doing now and all of the different projects that you're advocating for. It's really incredible to get to sit down and talk to you. And so you've been generous with your time and knowledge. Thanks again, Sarah.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me to share my work with you. Um, I love my projects. So for me, it's like always fun to talk about. And I love when I hear people that appreciate the work too. So I I feel uh, very good about being invited as well. (laughs)